Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts. Every time you wanted to say addict, instead you had to say so and so is a person who suffers so much pain in their life that they didn't know how to relieve, so they turned to certain behaviors or substances to relieve the pain. That would change the conversation around addiction. For an alcoholic addict such as myself, this is like meeting Father Christmas, except he's real. Gabor Mate is a doctor and expert in addiction, stress, and childhood development. But he's also, in my mind, something of a revolutionary, challenging all our assumptions about what it is to be well. His book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, was a great comfort to me when I had to get sober. And his new book, The Myth of Normal, looks at trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. You will have heard guests on this podcast reference him. He's a recurring character, so it's great to have him here. Welcome to Mad World, Gabor Mate. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So the first question we ask all of our guests, from Prince Harry to Hunter Biden, how are you really? Fundamentally, I'm well. I mean, I'm in his book tour um, after this project that took me 10 years of blood, sweat, and tears to quote somebody. So it's a real pleasure and an honor to be traveling, talking about it. At the same time, as you can hear from my voice, it's rather cracked and uh, croaking. And that's because I've been talking too much. And yesterday I was feeling quite down, tired. Something happened, I reacted very much like a frustrated little child because I was depleted. Last night I slept well, so I'm feeling much better, but how am I? It fluctuates. But uh, today, at the moment, feeling really well. Thank you. Okay. So I, what I want to know about you is you started out as what we would call in the UK a GP. Yeah. So you ran a general family practice yeah. in Canada. How did you go from, you put in a quote about, you know, the best physicians are also philosophers. And yeah. I feel like you've gone from being a physician to a philosopher. You are not just a GP, you mm -hmm. are a healer, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. What led you down that path? How did you go from there to here? Well, partly because, in fact, chiefly because, I don't know if you know Dante's Inferno, but it begins with this line saying, halfway through life, midway through life, I lost my path. And so midway in my life, I was quite a lost person. I was depressed and frustrated and irritable and 
marriage problems and difficulties with my kids and I had to just and like Dante, like you know what he has to do? He has to go to hell to find redemption. I had to descend into the darkness of my own soul and my own traumas, you know, to figure out what the hell got me off the path. No, that wasn't like an overnight effort, but it took a long time. But so but I really had to question what was making me behave and feel the way I was. And then furthermore, as a family physician, I couldn't help but notice that people got ill mentally or physically, they had traumas in their lives, and those traumas were related to their physical or mental health conditions. So reality kind of forced itself upon me. Now, nothing in medical school training prepares you for that. But if your eyes are open, you just see it, that who gets sick, um, who develops depression or anxiety. And, and as a family physician, you have an advantage in that you really get to know people before they get sick. Mm-hmm. Specialists only see people after they're diagnosed already. So the specialist doesn't know anything about the human being. And nor do they care to ask because nothing in their training prepares them for it. Mm-hmm. They're just trained to deal with this particular body organ, not, not with the whole person in the context of their life. So it was a combination of my own struggles and the need to get to know myself with what I was observing as a physician that brought me to look at the larger issues of what happens to people, what forms them, what shapes their responses, what determines their worldview, what informs their self-concept, how that relates to their health and illness, and in what context all that occurs, which, properly speaking, is the entire world, the entire culture, which goes back to some very ancient teachings of the Buddha and indigenous cultures, that everything is connected. And that's not a new bit of wisdom. What is frustrating here is that modern science has more than validated that ancient wisdom, and modern medicine completely ignores that science. No, so that that meant I was in a position as somebody trained medically to bring together all the science and all that wisdom and to talk about it. So that was the path. You talk about the indigenous cultures, um, indigenous communities, and you reference in the book how indigenous communities that were colonized have some of the highest levels of not just mental illness, but also physical illness of addiction. And that sort of comes to the, the point, to the heart of this, which is that the way we are supposed to live as humans has been completely disrupted. And it's really not any wonder that so many of us are unwell. Connection with each other, connection with nature, it's all gone. And reading your work time after time, I'm struck by this thought that just as we look back 150 years and go, I can't believe that surgeons didn't wash their hands (laughs) and know that that was how infection spread. Will we, well, we won't, obviously, but in 150 years, will people look back at now and go, I cannot believe they went through life medicalizing so much mental illness, trying to medicate it, when actually what I really get from your work is that often these illnesses are the medicine in themselves. They're our body trying to say, this does not work for me. Yes. So interesting you should mention hand washing because there's a Hungarian physician called Ignaz Semmelweis who in the 19th century in Vienna they were delivering babies, and the women whose deliveries was conducted by medical doctors developed purple ear fever, childbed fever, and died in large numbers. Mm-hmm. Those women who were looked after for my midwives, they were much safer from death. And this physician figured out that the difference was that the doctors would come from having just done autopsies on all kinds of infected dead people, 
They wouldn't wash their hands. They would deliver babies. And he said, let's just wash their hands. He was hounded out of the profession. Really? He ended up very tragically dying in a mental health institution. And yet, this is before there was a microbe theory. He just observed what he observed. Mm. Now he's considered one of the great medical heroes. I think 150 years from now, we're going to look back and say, can't believe that these people separated the mind from the body. Mm. Can't believe how they didn't see the connections, the, the scientifically demonstrated connections between the person's psychology, physiology, and their social relationships. I mean, it's just so self-evident, you know. And what's strange about it is these are not new insights, not even in the medical world. Do you know what Socrates said 2,300 years ago? That the trouble with the doctors of today is they separate the mind from the body. Mm. 2,300 years ago. They don't see the whole. That's what he said. And there were great physicians here in Britain, in Canada, in France, who said that chronic illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, had to do with emotions. Mm-hmm. And they had no science to prove it. They just had their intuitions. Today we have the science that demonstrates the connections and even the physiology of how those connections arise. Physicians are not trained to understand any of that. Mm. Oh, it's astonishing. It's really astonishing. The gap between science and medical practice is astounding. But also that thing of emotions and physical illness, that can be quite a sort of, I suppose, in modern parlance, like a triggering thing for people. They can feel sort of blamed. But you're very clear in the book that this isn't about apportioning blame. It's yeah. not to say you're at fault for developing motor neuron disease or cancer, or it's saying that these are vital clues. As well, to how actually, if you came to me with, say, an autoimmune illness like rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, or scleroderma, or lupus, or any, any one of these things, what would you rather hear me say? you got this disease, who knows why? It's just bad luck. And we don't know what causes it. We certainly don't know how to cure it. And the best we can do is mitigate it if you take medications for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Would you rather hear that? Or would you rather hear me say, these conditions have been shown by science to be very much connected to your emotional life, particularly to unconscious patterns that you developed through no fault of your own as a child because as a response to trauma, as a response to certain emotional dynamics within your family, so you developed these adaptive responses, such as, say, suppressing your feelings. Mm-hmm. This wasn't your fault. This was adaptive. In fact, it was the brilliance of your organism. But unfortunately, those adaptations are no longer serving you. They're, in fact, getting in the way of your health. And so if we could... Talk about that, you could actually reverse or drop those compulsive patterns that you unconsciously developed, and there's something you can actually do about your own. I mean, which message would you rather hear? And there's no blame in that second one, because why would you blame somebody who developed unconscious adaptive patterns as a child in response to difficult circumstances? So on the one, there's no blame, but, but on the other hand, I'm giving you a sense of responsibility. I'm saying that you're responsible. You're able to respond once you become conscious of what's going on. So I think this is a much more humane and um, positive message. We were talking just before we came in, I said that as an alcoholic and addict, your work meant a lot to me. And you said, you're not just... All I, all I said was, no, you're not. Yeah. And what did you mean by that? Because nobody is their dysfunction. That's not who you are. And no, you may have drank in a way that was 
harmful to you and your emotional life and even possibly your physiology and to your relationships. But that doesn't mean that's who you are. It just means that's something you did mm. and you did it for a reason. And my view on addiction is very simple, is that if you ask anybody, like an addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves, but then suffers negative consequences as a result of and cannot give up despite that harm. Any behavior, I said, could be alcohol, could be sex, gambling, drugs. Mm. Buying opera CDs. Compulsive shopping for anything, you know, pornography, whatever. But then you ask anybody, not what's wrong with your addiction, but what's right about it. So if I ask you, for example, what did it give you temporarily, the drinking? What did it give you that you wanted? Oblivion, freedom. Yeah, and why would somebody need oblivion? From pain. Exactly. Torturous, torturous pain. Compulsive yeah. So is pain relief a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Yeah. In other words, the addiction wasn't your problem, nor does it represent who you are. Um, the addiction was your attempt to solve the problem of pain. Now, if I had to then delve into why you might have the pain, we would find that you were traumatized in your childhood. And so that the addiction is not any primary manifestation of who you are. It's just a pain response. It's mm -hmm. totally normal to want to escape from pain when you know no other way. And so that's not who you are, who you actually are. If I could outlaw the word addict, really, I would say every time you wanted to say addict or alcoholic or anything, instead you had to say so-and-so is a person who suffers so much pain in their life that they didn't know how to relieve, so they turned to certain behaviors or substances to relieve the pain. That would change the conversation around addiction. So I don't label people by their... And by the way, there's much more to you even than that pain response. There's also the liveliness and the creativity and the humor and the love. And, you know, so why would I identify you with one particular aspect of your behavior that was simply a pain response? Mm -hmm. So somebody says, I'm an addict. No, you're not. So it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you, you go into this in the book that there are... When it comes to addiction, there are kind yeah. of two schools of thought. And the yeah. most kind of common and probably most unhelpful is that it's a moral failing. Yeah. And it's not. As you say, yeah. and as you can explain much better than me, addiction begins as an attempt to induce feelings that we were biologically programmed to generate innately exactly. and would have if unhealthy development hadn't got in the way. Yes. And as you said, the question to ask is not what is wrong with the addiction, but what is right, which yeah. you said. Yeah. I want to kind of go back to your work. Tell us about the work that you did with some of the most unwell, yeah. quote unquote, addicts yeah. in Vancouver. You did. Yeah. You worked for a very long time. Twelve years. Yeah. People that the thought of getting them sober yeah. was it was almost cruel. And you yeah. talk about in the realm of hungry ghosts how you realised that we were essentially criminalizing and punishing people that were traumatized. Yeah. I think in our modern society, we have this notion of trauma and you kind of go into it as well as capital T trauma. Yeah. And that's what I think a lot, especially in Britain, where yeah. we are like stiff upper lip, yeah. <laughs> stoic, keep on. Yeah. Trauma is you've been in a war, something terrible has happened to you. Yeah. But as you point out, trauma can be not having your needs met as a child, which often isn't your parents' fault. I mean, you yeah. were separated from your mother. Yeah. In a concentration camp? No, it was in Budapest, uh, but under the Nazi occupation when I was 11 months old. Well, see, trauma is not what happens to you. We actually look at the, word, the meaning of the word trauma. It means a wound. Mm. 
And so you can be wounded in a war. You can be wounded in a tsunami. I mean, I mean psychologically wounded. Uh, you can be certainly wounded if you're abused sexually, physically, emotionally, etc. But you can also be wounded by not having your needs met. And human children, infants, are born with certain needs. When I say certain needs, needs that, if they're not met, that will distort their development. And you mentioned the indigenous cultures. Indigenous cultures, by and large, parented much more um, effectively, much more supportively, and much more lovingly than we do today. Kids were surrounded by a whole community of nurturing adults. It wasn't isolated parents living in a bungalow. It was the whole community. You know, the African saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a tribe to raise a child. And kids were with the parents the whole day, the adults the whole day. So they were surrounded by nurturing, protective presences. It's very different from the modern world. Those same indigenous people who, by all documentation, knew how to parent much more intuitively and much more nourishingly than we do now suffer the greatest incidences of child abuse, sexual abuse of children, neglect, violence in the family, addictions, suicides, and so on. This is true wherever you look, whether it's in Australia or Canada or the United States, all countries that your wonderful British Empire colonized <laughs> and really visited disaster upon the indigenous people. These people are now in the Vancouver downtown east side that you mentioned where I work. 30% of my clients are indigenous. They make up 5% of the Canadian population. 50% of the women in jail in my country are indigenous. Mm -hmm. They make up 5% of the population. This is the result of the historical trauma that was visited upon them by colonialism and its aftermath. So in the downtown east side, and, and, the, and the downtown east side of Vancouver is in the Western world's most concentrated area of drug use. Mm -hmm. We have more people there within a few square block radius dependent on drugs than anywhere else in Britain or the States or any other country in the, in, in the Western world. In my 12 years of work down there, as I've often said, I didn't have one single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. And all the men had been severely traumatized, many of them sexually and some in other ways but trauma was the universal dynamic amongst them and severe trauma, I mean. And the drugs was just their attempt to escape from the pain, just like the alcohol was in your case. And then these are the people that we ostracize and we punish and we criminalize and we render homeless and um, we feel superior to. Mm -hmm. The ones that were hurt by society are the ones also most punished by society. This is the humane Western world. It's, they can look back 100 years from now, or maybe a thousand, and they're gonna say, what the heck did these people think they were doing? Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. I mean, this is just what, what, what the science shows, what the research shows, what anybody who works with addictions, so if they have any eyes that in their heads, they'll see. It's so self-evident, and yet it's contrary to the law assumes that people addicts by choice. I mean, if it's not a choice, what are we doing punishing them? Mm. I mean, does anybody ever wake up one morning and says, my ambition is to become a drug addict? No. You know, so it's something that people drift into because it's their attempt to escape from the pain. They don't even realize how much pain they're in.
they probably don't wouldn't even label it as pain. They wouldn't because they're so used to it. But their organism experiences the pain. So when they find the drug or the behavior that soothes the pain, ah, now they feel normal. So as one sex trade worker said to me, and I said, what does heroin do for you? She said, heroin is like a warm, soft hug, which is exactly what she didn't get as an infant and as a child. Mm. You know, so that's what addiction is. And so there's no choice in the matter. It's certainly not an inherited brain disease. That's a whole lot of scientific hogwash. I mean, I could expiate at great length about how nonsensical those theories of addiction as a brain disease is. Certainly it involves the brain. Everything involves the brain. But it didn't originate in the brain. The brain itself is shaped by the environment. And trauma has a significant impact on the child's brain development. And again, trauma doesn't have to be that severe, big T, big ticket disaster. It can also be a sensitive child whose needs are not met. It's interesting because I was going to say that the other the other view of addiction, and it speaks to how little we understand it, yeah. is the very much the 12-step view, which is yeah. that it's a disease. Yeah. And I use 12-step programs, and they're very helpful for me. But yeah. you'd hear so often, sometimes people will talk about how there's all sorts of reasons, all sorts of things happened in my childhood, but that's not why I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And I find that a really interesting sort of theory. I know that I cannot pick up a drink and not then, you know, drinking, going crazy. But I'm also, as an alcoholic, when I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, so if I was, and I, I realised this is going into, and so I'm kind of calling myself out when I say it. So mm. if I was to address the trauma from my childhood properly, would I then be able to drink properly again? Or would... Well, first of all, you might not want to at all. Why would you want to? That's such a good answer. Secondly... The answer is yes. If you had really worked out the trauma and you weren't driven anymore to escape from yourself, you could have a drink. But I'd say if any doubt, don't try to find out. Yeah. That's the practical answer. But as far as 12 steps are concerned, they're wonderful steps, not just for people addicted, but anybody. I mean, who wouldn't benefit from doing a moral inventory? Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't benefit from recognizing the limitations of the ego, the powerlessness of the little separate little self that we imagine ourselves to be that who wouldn't benefit from seeking their higher power however they wish to define it so those are wonderful steps for life but the tough step movement is also largely in denial about trauma Mm. which is really interesting because dr bill w one of the founders of aa was a traumatized child his parents abandoned him when he was 11 years old and yet they don't talk about trauma so there's kind of a trauma aversion there and a denial there and so well, I recommend the 12 steps. I also recommend don't just stop there. Ask why the pain. Mm. Not why the addiction, but why the pain and what happened to you. Combined, some trauma mm, therapy combined with the 12 steps, really powerful. Mm. And so I'm not against the 12 steps. I just wish they'd have some trauma awareness to which in some 12-step meetings you might have access to, but it's rather disjointed and, you know, there's no organizationally to the extent that there is an organization they don't talk about trauma. No. One of the really fascinating things in this book was talking about, we have to talk about all of this stuff more because either we want fewer people to be addicts or we don't, you know, or we want people to be addicts so, as you say, we can look down on them, you know, and it gives us a sense of moral superiority. What I'm so fascinated about is this idea. So we ask the question, why does my child have crushing self-loathing? Why does my child Mm. have mental illness? And 
you put forward this thing, which, I, which as someone who grew up with absolutely crushing self-loathing and obsessive compulsive disorder from a very young age, you make the point that all of that mental illness, you talk about it as an adaptation. Yeah. It's actually the best worst option. That's because exactly if right. a child doesn't adapt, they are left with the only other option, which is that your needs aren't being met and you're not safe. Yeah, and, and I have to escape. Yeah. Which the child cannot do. No. And so, that's a, that's a really revolution. I mean, it's yeah. it, it, again, it's not. It's it makes sense. Yeah. And yet, it's so far away from what our culture sort of. Well, has- we medicalize everything. We pathologize everything, and rather than understanding the sources of people's distress in their life experience, we create these pathologies. Take OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So I don't know if anybody ever asked you this, but I would say it did something for you. It made me feel safe. Exactly. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it was a good thing at the time. Yeah, exactly. I would say it also did other things for you. Give you a sense of control. Yeah. I mean, whatever you did, wash your hand 99 times or check the door 105 times, it gave you a sense of control. Yeah. When you were growing up, you had no sense of control, no sense of safety. It also made your mind engaged with something that was in itself not painful kept your mind off the pain. Yeah. So the OCD served you. No, it also harmed you. These adaptations, they come along, they're not meant to be forever. They're meant, an adaptation is meant to work as long as the conditions demand it. But the nature of these childhood adaptations, such as tuning out because things are too stressful, and then you're diagnosed with ADD 40 years later or 50 years later as I was. Well, the adaptation of tuning out when there's too much stress is meant to last as long as you're helpless in the face of stress. Mm-hmm. But since these adaptations happen early and they're ingrained in the brain during the period of sensitive brain development, you can't just drop them. You're not even aware of them as adaptations. I mean, if it was really cold in London, which it does get cold here, um, you would adapt by how? You'd put on some warm clothing. Exactly. Now, what would happen to you if in the summertime you're still wearing that warm clothing? You'd get a heat stroke. Yeah, you'd suffer. The same adaptation that saved your life in one context will kill you in another. Mm. Nothing wrong with the adaptation in the first place. The difference is, is with the example of putting on the warm clothing, you did it consciously. Therefore, you can undo it consciously. These childhood adaptations are unconscious. The organism takes them on, not because of the child's deliberate will, but because of the unconscious survival mechanism and once you identify something with survival you're not going to get it up that easily even if the conditions change and in a different environment those same adaptations will hurt you which is where therapy comes in but the origins there's nothing wrong with you to start with these were normal responses to abnormal situations mm. it was not normal in the sense of healthy or natural for you to go through whatever traumas you had to go through as a child that's not what nature prepared you for. Nature prepared you to be loved, accepted, unconditionally celebrated, seen, heard for who you were, and to be allowed to experience all your emotions and to play freely and to feel very safe. That's what nature prepared you for. So that anything else is abnormal. And then your adaptations were normal responses to abnormal circumstances. You mentioned kind of consciousness and how much of life is below the, yeah, the yeah. tip of the iceberg. You know, yeah. There's so much hidden below. 
the other thing I find so interesting. So taking, I'm specifically interested in the addiction nature of this, but it's fascinating for all of us because we see addiction in a very binary way, you know, a very black and white way. It's, yeah. it's a drug addict or it's an, you know, it's someone on a park bench. But you point out that addiction in a way is at the very heart of our culture. So capitalism, consumerism, you know, the forces within them yeah. prey on our addictive compulsions. So I haven't got my phone with me, but it is, you know, they are designed specifically yeah to make you want more. Social media, designed to make you want more. Yeah. You point out they have neuromarketers. Yeah, 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 yeah. get that phrase, neuromarketing. Yeah. It, it's, it's actually deliberately concocted to hijack your, your nervous system in a way to reach it to its highest addictive craving, which will make you consume even more. Mm. Never satisfy, because if you're satisfied, you could stop doing it. Yeah. But to excite your brain circuits to the point where you keep wanting the same thing. And the consumer society is based on that. I mean, we don't need most of the junk that we buy. No. And we certainly don't need them in the elaborate way that they're presented and so on. So, you know, there's a book written long before my book called When Society's an Addict. It's all about this. But also, I think we're sort of addicted to stress, aren't we? And I was just thinking, just at lunchtime, I went out to get a sandwich yeah. from this, like, chain of sandwich shops called Prep. And I was yeah. in there, and the queue was out the door, mm. and there were people sort of screaming, going, oh, cappuccino, yeah. tuna toasty. Yeah. And it was so stressful. And I yeah. was looking at people who were just like... And I thought, this is how we live our lives. Like, yeah. we wake up in the morning, an alarm clock goes off, immediately yeah. stress hormones into our brains. And yeah. then that carries on throughout the day. So no wonder we are all desperate for this sort of balm for our soul. To, we overeat. And not only that, I don't know what it's like for you, but when you first wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? I literally get up, go downstairs, and I have a black coffee with a cigarette. Uh-huh, Okay. Then I check my phone. And then you check your phone, yes. <laughs> One, no, what the black coffee and the cigarettes do is they elevate the level in the brain of a substance called dopamine. Mm -hmm. And dopamine is essential for life. Yeah. It's essential for a sense of vitality, for curiosity, for seeking. Dopamine flows when you're exploring a novel environment, seeking food, seeking a sexual partner. So it's the vitality, excitement, being alive, being engaged, chemical in the brain. Mm -hmm. And nicotine and caffeine, like crystal meth or cocaine, these are all stimulants. They elevate dopamine levels. And then you go to another behavior that also excites your dopamine circuits called the cell phone. Mm -hmm. So basically, you start the morning with behavior that's designed to elevate in your brain a substance that should naturally be there in sufficient quantity that you wouldn't need those things. Mm. I'm not against coffee. I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying that there's a reason why it works. So tell me about babies and dopamine receptors yeah. and the healthy development yeah. in very, very tiny infants yeah. of their dopamine receptors and how it's been found that some addicts have slightly skewed dopamine receptors. Well, so here's the thing that it's another one of these deeply hidden medical secrets because they've only been published in 10,000 <laughs> journal articles, that the human brain develops an interaction with the environment. So it's the environment acting on the genes that shapes the physiology of the brain. And to quote a Harvard article, the article from Harvard Center on the Developing Child, published 10 years ago in the Journal of Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Academy, 
The human brain develops through a complex process that begins before birth and continues into adulthood. So that means the child's brain is already being shaped in utero. We know that stress on the mother during pregnancy diminishes the child's dopamine receptors. That means that the mother's emotional states during pregnancy can already program the child towards addictive tendencies, where they have to meet their dopamine needs externally, mm -hmm. and also towards things like ADHD, which is really a question of dopamine. In fact, when we give medications for ADHD, we give stimulants like Ritalin or Vivenza or, or, or Dexedrine or Adderall. These all elevate dopamine levels. Here's the thing about the brain. It's a biological organ, but the biology is interactive with the environment throughout the lifetime. So you take monkeys and you put them into isolation, that'll diminish the number of dopamine receptors. And that means there'll be less dopamine activity in there, they'll be more listless. You put them back into company, their dopamine receptors come back. Unless they're bullied, in which case they don't. So that our interactions with the environment actually program our brain. And that begins in utero. And then the second paragraph of that same, or the second sentence of that same Harvard summary of brain development says that, basically points out that the most important influence on the development of the brain is the emotional interaction with the nurturing caregivers. So what shapes the physiology of the brain is actually our emotional relationships with our parents and other nurturing caregivers. When those relationships are troubled because the parents are stressed, because the parents are traumatized, because the parents are under economic pressure, mm -hmm. because the parents suffer racism, because the parents haven't worked out their childhood traumas yet, which is, was the case with my wife and I when we were parents, that's going to affect the brain development of the child. Mm. Cannot help but, because that's how the brain develops. So when we look at this idea of brain diseases, what we're actually looking at is the impact of the environment. So, yeah, dopamine or the opiate circuitry, the endorphins, that the opiate drugs like heroin, they work in our brain only because we have receptors for opiates. Mm -hmm. Receptors being molecules on the cell surface that receive the messenger molecule from the environment. Opiates are these messenger molecules. Why do we have receptors? You know, opiates derived from opium grown in Afghanistan. Why do we have receptors for opium grown in Afghanistan? We don't. We have receptors for our own internal opiates, which are called endorphins, endogenous morphine-like substances, and they have significant roles in human life. Endorphins, we couldn't live without them. Mm -hmm. They provide pain relief. Imagine life without that. They provide a sense of pleasure and reward and elation. Try and live without that. And they also make love possible, connection. And so children whose conditions are troubled when they're growing up for whatever reason, they don't develop these systems adequately. Now they're sitting ducks for addictions. And by the way, any addict, whether they're addicted to gambling or shopping or sex or, or drugs, they're looking for a big dopamine hit. So when I had my shopping addiction, it wasn't this compact disc that I was spending thousands of dollars a day on. It wasn't the love of music. I love the music, I still love the music. But that's not what I was addicted to. I was addicted to the shopping, because mm. the shopping temporarily would give me a dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. The gambler is not after the money, because if they're after the money, once they win, if they win, they'd stop going, but they're back the next day losing the money, because what they're actually after is the thrill mm. of the dopamine rush that they get. In other words, all addicts 
The only difference between a cocaine addict and a gambling addict or a shopping addict is that the gambling addict and the shopping addict or the workaholic, they get their dopamine through that activity, whereas the cocaine addict has to rely on the injected substance. Mm. Then we look down on these people as somewhat different than the rest of us. You make the point that, you know, you mentioned workaholism, and I think that's crucial in the culture we live in, in a way that we would not applaud someone for having alcoholism or or drug addiction. We look at people at the very top of our, who run our systems, you point out sort of presidential candidates. I could also have put in some prime ministerial candidates. In fact, I did, but there wasn't enough room to keep them in, so I... Oh, but you, well, you talk about Tony Blair. <laughs> I, I mentioned Tony Blair, yeah. but, but I didn't, not, not in that sense. Well, you can talk about it now if you want. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at a figure like Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. she was notoriously a closed book to herself. There's no self-reflection, no self-awareness there at all. And she desperately needed power. And why? Why does anybody... Why do any politician cling to power so desperately? A recent example in Britain, I mean, it was Boris Johnson, who, one week, no, you know, I'm called upon to lead the nation. And by next week, his own party says, well, buddy, you better go because we can't stand you anymore because you're losing votes for us. You know, we never cared you about a person. We cared about you because you could provide us with votes votes Validation. And now, now that you can't you're a losing proposition get the heck out of here mm. that's the ethics of politics but why do they need to cling to power so much because they don't know who they are without it mm. why don't they know that who they are without it because they didn't get the validation and valuation as children mm-hmm. and so a lot of these politicians are very troubled traumatized people and we see them i mean donald trump or hillary clinton or any number of canadian or british prime ministers really troubled people but we make them successes, just like I was a success. My workaholism made me very successful. Mm-hmm. This doctor who's always available and always so kind and never says no to new patients and you can call him day or night. And that same wonderful guy was not available for his family. Mm-hmm. And when he wasn't working, you mentioned being addicted to adrenaline. I was an adrenaline junkie. I was addicted to my own stress hormones. So when I wasn't under stress, I felt irritable like any addict in the withdrawal, and I was depressed. So on the one hand, society rewards some of the most egregious addictions with adulation and, and power. On the other hand, on certain addicts, we look down upon as beneath us. Mm. It's so interesting that what you say about when you got to your midlife, that yeah. was when you start to question. Yeah, I'm 42, and I definitely feel my whole success what i've realized interviewing people or is that often the most successful people are the most unhappy yeah. they are driven by deep unhappiness from yeah. their childhoods yeah. that's a kind of generalization but it really does go across uh, the board of course, of course. and i remember when i used to read about say an actress or an author who became a recluse yeah. right and they've died and then they talk about how they were incredibly successful and then they became a recluse and i would always think oh that poor they're obviously a bit yeah. wrong in the head i now realize that people that junk it all and go this is not for me i want to go and live in the forest with they're actually the sanest of all of us well you know there was of all the rulers that i know there was one that i remember charles v was a led the holy roman empire and he actually retired and i think went to a monastery but you never see that too much Mm. people cling to power and 
that's part of the toxicity of our culture that I describe in this book, The Myth of Normal, is that society rewards some very toxic behaviors mm. and that even adulates and admires these people who engage in them. I mean, that's how backward, mm. you know. I mean, if in your personal life you met somebody who wanted to dominate everything and was always saying things that turned out not to be true, would you be friends with them? No. But these are the people we keep electing. And we even expect it. Mm. We're surprised when it isn't like that. You know? Yeah. That's, there's something askew here. Let's talk about toxic culture because yeah. that whole thing of the disconnection we have, you talk about. I mean, yeah. I cannot help but think of lockdown as we've just had it. But yeah. you say a society that fails to value communality, our need to belong, to care for one another and to feel caring energy flowing towards us is a society facing away from the essence of what it means to be human. Yeah. I'm just reading, but you're like, I know, Brownie, I wrote this. Th those, are, <laughs> those are really good words, right? Yeah. yeah you took the words right out of my I mouth. <laughs> pathology <laughs> cannot but ensue to say so is not a moral assertion, yeah. but an objective assessment. And then, yeah. you, you know, you mentioned racism and yeah. black people suffer more diabetes, obesity, hypertension and strokes, not to speak of mental yeah. illness. And that amazing quote from James Baldwin way back in 1961, which yeah. is to be black in the US and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all of the time. Yeah. So no wonder. But you also talk about women. Women suffer more chronic illness of the body than men. Yeah. yeah. And this is all about subjugation, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and power structures that we live in. Yeah, yeah. So the book was published a month ago today, September the 13th. Mm -hmm. A week later, there was a study in the States that show that even a single incidence of racism will disturb the immune system and the hormonal apparatus. Now imagine over a chronic period of time what that'll do to your immune system. So no wonder black people, particularly black women, suffer more autoimmune disease mm -hmm. when the immune system turns against them. Mm -hmm. Now women in general suffer, 70, 80% of autoimmune diseases happen to women. Mm -hmm. This is a big medical mystery why well, as far as I'm concerned, there's no mystery whatsoever. Because autoimmune disease happens to people who stifle their emotions, who automatically and compulsively serve the needs of others, who repress their healthy anger so they don't set boundaries that'll protect them, who feel that they're responsible for other people feel, and they must never disappoint anybody. Now, which gender in this culture is acculturated to fulfill those criteria? It's women. And that's why they have so much autoimmune disease. And again, race plays a function here because when you're black in the States, you can have a lot of anger, but it's dangerous to express it. Mm -hmm. You have to repress it. No wonder they have more disease. We have this mysterious condition called hypertension and high blood pressure. Doctors say, well, it's idiopathic, which means we don't know what causes it. We don't know what causes it. Just parse the word, hypertension. Hypertension, too much tension. And so no wonder black American kids start showing hypertension even in, even in childhood. It has nothing to do with their genetics because their African relatives do not. Mm. It has to do with repression in a racist society. So all these social factors, and in the case of women, the culturally engendered role that they're trained basically to, to accept. There was a study in the States during COVID times. And the article said society's shock absorbers. Mm -hmm. And the study showed that women felt responsible for their spouses' stresses and their family's stresses. 
and they felt guilty when they couldn't protect their spouses and families from the stress of the COVID circumstances. Mm -hmm. They felt guilty. So society shock absorbers. So I borrowed that article title for, for the chapter in this book. There was a study in Canada that looked at recovery after open heart surgery and women notoriously do worse than men. And this study showed that when a man has open heart surgery, they go home, they get taken care of. When a woman has open heart surgery, they go home and they, and they resume their caretaking role. It's that, no, it's not conscious, it's not the woman's fault. It's simply how people are trained and acculturated and how they develop. But the result is significant, the impact on the physiology. Mm -hmm. Because scientifically, you can't separate the mind from the body. So when you're messing with the emotions and suppressing them, you're playing havoc with your physiology. Everything about our culture, from the political systems we live in, to the yeah. media we consume, to the food yeah. we eat, yeah. are toxic to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was thinking about that. You talk about how the climate crisis is intricately connected to yeah. our mental health. Yeah. The madness of it is that we're not just killing our planet, but we are killing mm -hmm. ourselves. And I think right now, you know, in the UK, we have this thing of, are we going to turn on our central heating? Yeah. You know, gas prices, the cost yeah. of living crisis. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have blackouts this winter, we've been told. That's what I heard. As a result of which people will die. They will. And But to me as well, this is, you know, if we talk about that higher power thing and having a sense of communion and connection to the universe, like there is a message here. Yeah. And that message is that we cannot go on living like this. This is not sustainable. But that's just interesting. Because if, let's say you had a garden... And somebody was coming in there and messing it and polluting it and destroying the plants and killing the beneficial fauna and flora and insects. This is your garden. And somebody was coming in and doing that to you. What would you do? You'd get rid of them. Yeah. But we accept the same dynamic massively on the social scale and we're completely passive in the face of it. Mm. So that socially we live much more passively and we resign ourselves to circumstances that would never accept most of us in our personal lives. Mm. And that's part of the toxicity of this culture, is that it makes people so passive. Now, Britain participated in two American instigated wars, one of them being the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. Thank you to Tony Blair, where half a million people were killed, Iraqis not to mention thousands of British men and uh, British people and, and, and Americans and so on. Now, I'm pretty sure that if I found the average Briton, say British male, and I said, tell me about how you feel about the latest acquisition by Manchester City of this Norwegian striker who's, every time he go, plays, he scores a hat trick. Hagland, his name is. They would talk volubly about Pep Guardiola and his uh, management of Manchester City and what combination of players would have them be the most effective against which opposition. If I asked that same British male, now put together two sentences for me, logical, historically accurate sentences about the history of Iraq or the history of Afghanistan, they couldn't rub two words together that made any sense. Now, which is actually more important, mm. which is a greater consequence mm. in their lives. I'm not blaming the average British male. 
I'm saying that's what the culture does. It diverts us with stuff that's totally irrelevant. I mean, it's interesting, enjoyable. I love football. You know, I grew up in a, in fact, my country beat you guys in 1953, I think it was, at <laughs> Wembley Stadium, 6-3. to three. It was one of the great moments of my life, you know. <laughs> You're no still hun- hanging on to that one. No, I'm still hanging on to it. No Hungarian who lived through that ever forgets that victory, 6-3. <laughs> to three. And then when Britain came to Canada, uh, to, to, to Budapest, you know how much we beat you guys by? 7-1. to one. But That was a long time ago. So I'm not against football. But what I'm asking is what actually is important in your life? What wars your country is engaged in? And its consequences, or which football player does your favorite team acquire or not? I mean, there's no comparison. That itself is the sign of the toxicity of the culture that makes us value and engage with things that have no significance to our lives and ignore the larger questions that do have great significance and great consequence, or which we know nothing at all. I mean, that itself is a sign of a toxic culture. How do we challenge it? I mean, there's, you quite another James Baldwin quote which is yeah. not everything that is face can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is face well that sums it up this is the start or the ongoing work yeah. yeah so people need to look my intent in writing this book was basically to help wake people up those that are interested in being woken up by the way not everybody is and furthermore to help people get to know themselves, not as isolated individuals, but as part of a culture which shapes how they are and how they view the world, but which they don't need to be passive, acted upon subjects, but they can actually take an active role, a sense of agency, uh, coming from our own authentic selves. And and how do we connect with that? I mean, that's the essence of the intent of this book. Mm. I don't have simple answers, but at least we have to start talking about it. So if there is anyone listening right now who what you say resonates, which absolutely does for me, you talk about things like the five A's and trauma yeah. consciousness. I yeah. know it's to say to you, could you just sum up in five minutes yeah. <laughs> some, your best advice for people listening about how to heal, how yeah. to heal, how to start to even begin that journey? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the four A's. There should be a fifth one. Were I to write the book again, <laughs> there'd be a fifth one there. The four that are there are anger, healthy anger, because again, a repression of healthy anger makes you a sitting duck for illness because of the scientifically documented unity of our emotional apparatus with our immune system. When we repress our emotions, we're actually disabling our immune system itself. Yeah. And just as anger that you suppress, that you repress, turns against you in the form of self-loathing, so can the immune system against you. In fact, anger and the immune system have the same role, by the way. Because what's the role of healthy anger? It's to protect your boundaries. Mm. If I were to intrude upon you now, you'd say, stop, get out. That's healthy anger. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's necessary. Now, once it served its function and protected you, you wouldn't have to keep getting angry or staying angry. You'd say, okay, well, it's over. Healthy anger then is a boundary defense. What is the immune system? It's also boundary defense. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's called a, sec- a floating brain. It has memory, learning capacity, and reactive capacity, just like the brain. In fact, it is part of the brain because the immune system is inseparable from emotional apparatus or from our hormonal system. It's all one. So given that it's all one, if you repress anger, we're also messing with our immune system. So that's the first point is healthy anger, which no 
one-day-old babies without. You just try and feed them something they don't want to eat. You find out what healthy anchor is all about. So that the loss of that is a result of trauma. So that's the first thing, anger. Second thing is acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean toleration, putting up with bad stuff. It just means actually accepting that, oh, this is how things are right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to deny how it is. I'm not going to turn a blind eye to how it is. No, I'm not going to just sit there resenting how it is. This is how it is. What can I do about it? So that's acceptance. Agency, which is actually being an active agent in your own life, like rather than just being a passive recipient of healthcare or other people's decisions, you're actually the agent in your own life. Mastery, that's an essential human need. And so where did we lose it? Where did it become passive and how did you regain it? That's the issue of agency. Authenticity is the fourth one. And authenticity, again, it's not some fancy concept. It's very practical. If I ask any group of people, as I did this morning, I talked to 500 police men and women mm-hmm. here in London about trauma and addiction. And I asked my usual question or the other day at the How to Academy, I asked 1,000 people, raise your hand if you ever had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something and you ignored it and you're sorry afterwards. Now, would you raise your hand for that? Yes. Yes, of course. Which tells me about your childhood. Because no one-day-old baby ignores their gut feelings. So something happens. And what happens is that we learn that to be in touch with our gut feelings is to put us in conflict with our environment. Therefore, the sake of belonging and acceptance, we give up on our authentic selves. It's that simple. Now, now when we evolved out there in nature, how long does any creature in nature survive if they don't know their gut feelings? Not very long at all. Not very long. So we're not talking about some abstract new age concept here. We're talking about an essential human need to be authentic, auto the self, to be in contact, in connection with our emotions and our bodies. That's authenticity. And to be able to act from them Mm. as necessary. In this society, most of us, I mean, out of a thousand people, when I ask that question, 980 at least will put their hands up, which means they're telling me about what happened in their childhoods. Because we were born authentic. Mm. We can regain that authenticity. So that's the fourth A of healing. The fifth one that I would include if I were to rewrite that chapter would be awareness. Because to make all the others work, you have to be aware of what's going on. Mm. I kind of took that for granted, but it should have been in there. I think there are five in here. No, there's only four. Oh, okay. I, trust me. I've I, written I, down five A's. Well, there you go. <laughs> you, you, you fantasized one of them. <laughs> Do you know what? We could do a whole separate podcast on attachment versus authenticity. And I just wanted to say personally that that chapter particularly really helped me at the moment, just Mm. some stuff that is going on in my life. Mm -hmm. That ability to be able to kind of step back and see, you know, there's something so liberating about seeing that I am not a freak or that actually it's just, it's my brain wiring. Yeah, that's right. And your brain wiring for a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's something incredibly liberating. And that, yeah. for me, is one of the most helpful. The, the whole attachment theory mm. thing mm. has been one of the most helpful things mm. in my day-to-day life and mm. recovery. I was wondering if you could just read the... I don't obviously don't want to spoil this book. Yeah, I don't know. It's long enough that you can't spoil it. If you could just read the last couple of paragraphs of the book, because I like. think they landed so much in my heart, and I would just love personally to hear you read them. By the way, at this point, for two reasons, I have to give a shout-out to my son, Daniel, 
with whom I wrote this book and with whom I could not have written this book. And uh, he's the one who actually reads the audio version. And the audio version is the second best-selling audio book in the United States right now. It's 18 hours. Yeah, it's 18 hours, yeah. <laughs> That's a lot my, of reading. Myself, I don't listen to audio books. I, I want to have a book in my hand. But the audio version is selling incredibly well, and Daniel's the one who does the reading. So this is me standing in for my son, Daniel. The other reason I want to give a shout-out to him is because these last paragraphs were largely written by him in connection with me, like we wrote together, but much of it was came through him. Anyway, these are the final paragraphs of the book. It all starts with waking up, waking up to what is real and authentic in and around us and what isn't, waking up to who we are and who we're not, waking up to our bodies are expressing and what our minds are suppressing, waking up to our wounds and our gifts, waking up to what we have believed and what we actually value, waking up to what we will no longer tolerate and what we can now accept, waking up to the myths that bind us and the interconnections that define us, waking up to the past as it has been, the present as it is, and as a future as it may yet be, waking up most especially to the gap between our essence calls for and what, quote, normal has demanded of us. We are blessed with the momentous opportunity Shedding toxic myths of disconnection from ourselves, from one another, and from the planet, we can bring what is normal and what is natural bit by bit closer together. It is a task for the ages, one that can redeem the past, inspire the present, and point to a brighter, healthier future. It is our most daunting challenge and greatest possibility. Carol Marte, thank you so much. It's been one of the greatest privileges mm. of my working life, my life generally, to meet you and get to hear you speak for an hour. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 That's 0300 They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. 
And importantly, please remember this, you are not alone.